I'm Will. And I'm Alicia. This is Enter the Rabbit Hole. Each week we dive into and dissect the weird, the momentous, and the downright interesting. And today we're covering Operation Midnight Climax. No, that's not a porno. Although it would fit in rather snugly after our last two-partner on NC-17, right? It does have a lot to do with sex, though, so... It's kind of like a porno for some people involved. Yeah, for some terrible, terrible people, it's going to get pretty sexy up in here. But before that, Alicia, how are you doing? I am great. We just had a three-day weekend. Lovely. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's pretty much all there is to say about that. That's all nice. you can say about that. Yeah, it was uh, restful and relaxing. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm excited to tell you about my, my new outlook on life. Um, uh, would you like to hear about it? Oh boy, would I? Yeah, um, it's so easy to get so caught up in the news, uh, which we're not gonna mention because we try and keep these shows timeless. But uh, ain't ain't things terrible always? But if you just imagine that we're living inside of a simulation, kind of like you're living in an inside of like an open world game or like a sandbox game and somebody is just, like, installing random mods, then it makes everything, like, a lot more manageable, don't you think? Yeah, it does take away some of the onus on <laughs> us to change things. Yeah. But, sure. That's true, that's true. Well, you can either imagine that it's real and feel like any real change is completely insurmountable, or just imagine that it's all fake. And none of it matters. And so I've been having a pretty chill time ever since I... Uh, I feel like you've been watching too many Matrix trailers. I've actually just finished the third season of Westworld. Mm. And it's incredible. But I was so, so freaked out by some of the far-flung concepts that they're throwing around there. Which really aren't that far-flung. That uh, in order to calm myself... That that's become <laughs> that's become my new mantra is like it's not real. We're living in this simulation. It's not real. We're living in this simulation. Uh, this is not healthy. <laughs> that sounds healthy. Yeah, this is not a hashtag ad, by the way. But uh, you should definitely check out Westworld if you're a fan of sci-fi and you haven't watched the first three seasons. It's it's great. Can't recommend it highly enough. But it might freak you out a little bit. Obviously. Obviously. All right. Well, if you're listening to this particular show, go ahead and follow the show and leave us a review. Good, bad, or ugly, we'd love to hear from you. Also, if you have any ideas for future episodes, please share them with us. You can find us on etrhthepod at gmail.com or at etrhthepod on social media. Excellent. Well, let's dive right in to the CIA. Mmm, yes. Uh, but before we begin today's episode, a quick word from our sponsors. 42. Vermilion. Farmhouse. Crescent. 7. Hopscotch. 19. Baker. Submit. Beach Ball. 14. Welcome back! 
I I just remembered I have somewhere to be. I have to go. I have to go now. <laughs> okay, well, there she goes out, out of the studio. She just walked straight through the wall. <laughs> With a very determined look in her eye. Yeah, there's just an Alicia-shaped hole in the wall. Um... What the heck were we doing just there? What was that little bit that we did? Uh, if you don't already know, you, you soon will. Uh, anyone who knows anything about the CIA can tell you two things. Number one, they love hanging out in park benches wearing trilbies while pretending to read the newspaper. Number two, they've been responsible for some really shady shit. Did they have a hand in the assassination of JFK? Potentially. Did they help invent crack cocaine to keep disenfranchised black people down? Quite possibly. But today we're going to be talking about something very, very insidious that they definitely did do. And we've got the receipts to prove it. And now we're on a list. <laughs> I've, I've been thinking about this a little bit, like, because we, uh, I don't know about you, I already told a couple of people that we were going to be covering the CIA. Oh, shouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and what they did was they immediately said, huh, that's interesting. I need to make a phone call. Mm. I am wondering if uh, you had any phone calls with anyone where you mentioned that we were going to be doing an episode in the CIA. No, because I'm smarter than you. <laughs> no. I just put it on a podcast and then release it into the world. Uh, I, I just uh, I just put it into a text message, which will live in the cloud forever. Mm. Yeah. Smart. Like a smart person. So in the 1950s and 1960s, in a supposed effort to win the Cold War, the CIA began research into the practical application of mind control. Yeah, it'll work. Well, we know... Okay. <laughs> no spoilers. But uh, if it sounds spurious to us now, I mean, they, they... they, Somebody legitimately thought that this would work. Somebody legitimately thought that there was a, was a call for this. Although in the subsequent years, the notion of mind control has been used throughout the world of fiction in everything from the Bourne Identity to the Naked Gun movies, it has some very real and very sinister roots, in fact. At the height of the Cold War, the CIA conducted experiments on countless unwilling victims, most of them having no clue what it was that was being done to them. By the time the infamous MK Ultra program was brought to a close, the CIA would be responsible for destroying the minds of countless psychiatric patients and dosing an untold number of individuals and groups with psychotropic drugs. And in the midst of all of this research, one man would be given carte blanche to run his own federally funded brothels, where he would experiment upon and monitor unwitting civilians in what would become known as Operation Midnight Climax. Ooh. If I just threw the name Operation Midnight Climax at you and you had no no clue what it was... Yeah, porn, like I said earlier. <laughs> just, just, but, okay, but what what are they doing with the porn? Operation Midnight Climax, it's a bunch of nuns in the middle of the night and they're, like, sneaking through the nunnery trying to get each other off. I don't oh, know, wow. why not? <laughs> to, to win the war... <laughs> If we can't get Sister Margaret to come, the the everything is lost. Um, Democracy as we know it will fail. It will fail. I would guess that it had something to do. Uh, maybe maybe the CIA gave us internet pornography, and they created an algorithm that was so 
that knows exactly what you want to jerk it to. Yeah, but that's just clearly not true. <laughs> <laughs> and they, no, hear me out. They've, they've made Pornhub so addictive, they're trying to bring down developed countries from the inside out. So basically, if, if you've got 5G uh, and you have a mobile phone and you don't have some kind of parental lock in it, it's it's all over. It's game over, man. I'm just saying that if they had created the perfect algorithm, I'd probably spend more time on Pornhub. But as it is, <laughs> pretty much all the videos are not to my taste. <laughs> Alicia, what do you want to do today? Uh, oh no, uh, Alicia, you gonna you gonna put your phone down, sweetheart? Uh, uh, no. The algorithm is so perfect. <laughs> but, <laughs> it knows just what I want. Busy, can't talk. Can talk now, Mil- milfy big tits. What? <laughs> All right. So uh, why don't you give us for people who don't know, we we should probably have a little background uh, background on the CIA, right? Yeah. So uh, before the CIA, there was the OSS, uh, and before the creation of the Office of Strategic Services or the OSS in 1942. The obtaining and sharing of intelligent information was pretty haphazard in the U.S. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, the information was collected in an unsystematic way by the Office of Naval Intelligence, by U.S. Army Intelligence, and by the FBI. The information gathered was rarely shared with other government agencies, and was sometimes not even provided to senior policymakers. It's a good job that they fixed all of that, and all of those agencies... collaborate together regularly and that's how we managed to prevent 9-11 and and when i say prevent 9-11 uh obviously no one knows what i'm talking about because um nothing ever happened yeah i heard some dudes were maybe gonna hijack some planes but then all those agencies stepped in uh together gino stop collaborate and listen was actually written (laughs) for the u.s intelligence agencies yes it was it was like dare like the dare Mm -hmm. campaign but for um but for terrorism. But for grown men. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned 9-11, because a lack of a good intelligence office led to sensitive information about Japan not reaching Roosevelt, and resulted in the bombing of Pearl Harbor on oh, December shit. 7th, 1941. Oh, God. <laughs> so, they suspect that if we had had a better intelligence office, then we would have known that Japan was amassing something, and that they were... Um, basically that they were going to try something and we didn't know or there were some snippets but they weren't put together properly and therefore Roosevelt wasn't warned in time. It would be like that part of the movie where everything has been built up towards this dramatic sneak attack and then you see those Japanese zeros kind of flying over the horizon and they're like, get ready boys, the Yanks will never see this coming. And then all of a sudden, somebody pulls the sheets off like an array of anti-aircraft guns and they're all like pointed dead on at like those fighters. And they're like, guess what, guys? We're ready. Sounds like a great film. You should write it. I mean, I think Michael Bay got there before I did. <laughs> Revisionist history. <laughs> yeah, that's what the movie Pearl Harbor is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, just six months prior to Pearl Harbor, the Office of the Coordinator of Information had been created and headed by William Wild Bill Donovan, a war hero and New York lawyer. Yeah, you're going to be uh, hearing a smidgen about him in episode two. Mm. So, 
This office was quickly renamed OSS, and while the COI, or the Coordinator of Information, had struggled under the hostility of military intelligence offices and the FBI, the OSS flourished with its less-than-orthodox leader. Mm. Roosevelt described Donovan as a man who had a hundred new ideas a day, of which 95 were terrible, though he added that few men had five good ideas in their lifetime. I feel like that mantra, Mm. that orthodoxy, that unorthodox orthodoxy will kind of hold true through the next few decades Mm -hmm. of of the CIA's life. So the OSS had a staff of approximately 12,000, about a third of them women, and they collected and analyzed information, led sabotage and demolition missions, spread misinformation, and performed rescues. But when Roosevelt died in 1945, Truman had no desire to prolong the life of OSS past World War II. By executive order, the agency was dissolved, but the core of the agency would become the CIA in 1947. Mm -hmm. At the time, the CIA was thought of as an American counterpart to the KGB, which was dissolved in 1991. Though, unlike the KGB, the CIA was forbidden by law, the National Security Act, from conducting intelligence and counterintelligence operations on domestic soil. That doesn't sound... Right, that doesn't... uh... Doesn't sound like they followed that at all, does it? Considering what we know about the rest of the episode. Yes, it doesn't really align with with what we know. Yeah, Mm -hmm. interesting, huh? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Spies will be spies, is all I'm saying. I I mean, it's this notion of um, you can do anything you want under the guise of protecting people from themselves, right? Uh, Homeland Security, baby. Well, it's that it's that old notion of if the American public and you know you you could spread it even further and say the public of the world in general knew what was going on behind the scenes, they would absolutely lose their minds. There'd be panic in the streets. People wouldn't go out to work. Um, and and we need to get people back to work. Am I right, guys? So. You know, you have to conduct all these things in in, in secrecy. Um, but at the same time, that also that's a very convenient way to just give yourself free reign to do whatever the hell you feel like. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay, so we can't talk about MK Ultra or Operation Midnight Climax without talking about a very important drug. Mm-hmm. LSD. <laughs> okay, consider, if you will, the simple rye bread. Delicious. Uh, mm. A nice, uh, slightly nutty yeah. morning treat. Uh, a bread with an earthy flavor. Yeah. Made from rye flour. And it's a staple of the German cuisine. Can I jump on it? Like, yeah, let's course. let's drive straight into Tangentville. Uh, <laughs> All about <laughs> uh, when I was younger, uh, I went on holiday a couple of times with one of my buddies, who uh, whose grandparents live in Germany, and every morning they would do like uh, a full spread for us. Just like imagine as many different bread rolls. And breads, 
as as you can think of, as many different meats as you can think of, and as many different cheeses as you can think of. And so, <laughs> I mean, at the time I thought it was... It was like my dream. <laughs> it was fucking amazing, but at the time, um, I mean, I, I was starting my day every day in like a food coma, <laughs> just like, pff, just stuffed full of carbs. Set up for the fields. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but then you, <laughs> but then you take a shit that's so <laughs> big and so firm. Um, it's great. Unnecessary. It's great. I would say. Okay, rye bread is also the host for a fungus called ergot or ergol. I'm gonna call it ergot. I've uh, heard it pronounced I'm not French. <laughs> yeah, I've heard it. <laughs> I've heard it pronounced as ergot before. And since when was not being French ever stopped us <laughs> on this show? Oh la la! It's either ergot or yeah. <laughs> Um, it's a poisonous substance uh, that in what is now modern-day Germany in 857 caused a great plague of swollen blisters consumed to the people by a loathsome rot so that their limbs were loosened and fell off before death. See, I'm no doctor, but it sounds to me like you're describing a zombie apocalypse. I mean, it's a fungus. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, yeah. But it's not. It's not like that. Obviously, it's not I mean, zombie apocalypse. <laughs> okay, because they didn't have the overwhelming desire to consume their neighbors. Which I'm pretty sure is a necessity for a zombie. Otherwise, it's just, um, what's the disease? Necro. No. No. Laryngitis. Oh, Christ. Leprosy. Leprosy. There you go. I was going to say the one that. Yeah, guys carry. so leper colonies are, are more manageable because they're not actively roaming and, and seeking to, to recruit <laughs> more people. Yeah, uh, you it's still around today, by the way, so... It is, but it's highly curable. I don't know if that's a public service announcement. Also, um, what is the creature I'm thinking of that carries leprosy? Hardback, it rolls into a ball. Oh, uh, an armadillo. Armadillos carry leprosy, but not a human strain. So please don't kill armadillos. <laughs> also, don't, like, lick them, I guess? Yeah, you probably shouldn't do that either. If You'll you definitely a... get, like, salmonella or well, something. Well, if you, uh, from uh, what social media has taught me, um, armadillos make really cute pets. But you probably, uh, if you, for whatever reason, have just bought a pet armadillo today and you ta you're taking them home from the armadillo farm uh don't don't give him any little kisses on the nose um yeah or uh, apparently hedgehogs carry salmonella too i think just, uh... these are just a wide array <laughs> of like potential millennial pets they look cute because you can dress them up and you can put some fun filters over the top of them they are all wild animals let's be clear they're not domesticated yeah so straight up top don't like anything that's not your partner or another consenting adult. Mm. Yeah. Or an ice cream. Ice creams are fine. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Okay, so we get penicillin from bread mold. So, you know, maybe ergot could give us something good. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Let's lick it and find out. <laughs> In 1938, a 32-year-old Albert Hoffman wanted to know. He isolated ooh, aotamine? Aotamine. Sure. Why not? Yeah. Um, from ergot to attempt to stimulate the respiratory and circulatory systems. Spoiler alert, it didn't work. So um, he didn't get, like, he, he didn't have a little rye bread and then run a fucking, you know, five-minute mile. Oh, we'll get to that. 
On his 25th attempt in 1943, he created LSD and accidentally ingested some of the drug through, like, basically through his fingertips. He got a little bit on his hand, didn't yeah. he, without realizing. So he, it, it caused him to, quote, perceive an uninterrupted stream of fantastic pictures, extraordinary shapes with intense kaleidoscopic play of colors for about two hours. So I feel like any time in TV or movies when somebody is dropping acid, maybe about 50% of the time they do that thing where all of a sudden, like... They just kind of put a kaleidoscope up to the screen. (laughs) And then play uh, a recording of the character going like, whoa, whoa. But I guess that's where this initial idea comes from, Mm -hmm. that um, you take LSD and then all of a sudden your eyes are kaleidoscopes. (laughs) So he needed to know if that drug was the the cause, which he, he didn't believe it was. So he kind of like huffed some other drugs that he was using because he was dissolving the the altamine in like um, a couple other drugs. So he was like, well, it must have been the fumes because there's no way it would have just like gone through my fingertips and like caused this reaction. He was also afraid because ergot is a poison. So he was worried that like basically he had ingested a poison. So. His response, even though he's worried about being poisoned, seems a little bit devil-may-care. It's like, oh, yesterday I got high as fuck, so I must, uh, let's uh, huff this. I've got I've got some uh, mold samples under here. Oh, like, no, no, it's not that. Scientists be crazy. It's like the guy who drank H. pylori so that he could see that it caused stomach ulcers. Yeah, but he was he was trying to save the the world. I mean, this guy... I mean, also... Let's, let's, the, okay, calm the, down a little bit. <laughs> the people who initially were trying to convince the American public that the lead in lead-based gasoline was not bad for the American public would also do things like that. They would go up on, on stage and then be like, now, ah, folks, there's the no need it. to worry. All right, I'm just going to take a little, a little chug of this. Oh, boy, that goes down smooth. All right, if you'll excuse me, folks. By the way, lead had potentially devastating effects on us in the 70s. Not um, us particularly, but... Yeah, we're fine. We're yeah. great. Our generation is fucking A-okay. nailing it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, back to LSD. So the next day he dissolved 0.25 milligrams of LSD. I, I cannot specify how small an amount he took because he was afraid that it was poison. Yeah, he he was uh, consciously low, low, low balling it, This is like a thousandth of a dose Mm -hmm. that he thought would be like what would cause him to to see something, um, see results. And he he expected nothing because it was such an infinitesimal dose. After all, LSD was derived from essentially a poison, so he was really worried 40 minutes later, he wrote, the only thing that he wrote in his notes was, uh, 1700, beginning dizziness, feeling of anxiety, visual distortions, symptoms of paralysis, desire to laugh. I feel like the end of that note should end with, like, progressively enlarging, ha 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 ha, <laughs> and then just, like, the pencil going off the side of the page. He said it was so difficult for him to write anything like he he couldn't talk he said like he wasn't able to talk and like he knew that he had to write notes down and he i think he had like no idea that he actually wrote that i mean Um, 
do you remember full disclosure Alicia and I have never done LSD before so we are just speculating mm. here but um maybe a bit of a false analogy do you remember uh when we took those edibles at your mom's place and then legal legal <laughs> do you remember when we legally took just in case of the fucking DEA like crack our our front door it's legal in my hometown i just want to be clear so we we took those edibles in your mom's front room and then i tried to get up to go and get a bowl of cereal and you watched me like like an arthritic 100-year-old man who wasn't sure whose house he was in, make my way to the kitchen and pour myself some cereal. Like, and that's that's a prescribed amount. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, that... Mm-hmm. Tell me more. Okay, so he asked his lab assistant to take him home, but because of wartime restrictions, they couldn't take a car, so they had to ride bicycles. Amazing. <laughs> so he just... Well, uh, Hoffman's lab assistant rode a bicycle, and Hoffman rode a multicolored dragon. <laughs> Basically. Like he was in the never-ending story. He said, everything in my field of vision wavered and was distorted as if seen in a curved mirror. I also had the sensation of being unable to move from the spot. Yep. So the entire time he thought he was going nowhere until they basically arrived at his house. And then he was like, oh, we're here. Even though he was riding his own bicycle. I was expecting either that or the opposite where his assistant's like, okay, Professor Hoffman, let's go. And he's like, I am going. Wee! <laughs> and he hasn't even gotten on his bike. He's actually just sat in a stool. So once he gets home, he requested a doctor. And milk. Nice. Milk is because it could relieve symptoms of some toxic symptom or some toxic substances. Side note, uh, that's why you should keep activated charcoal on hand. It binds with drugs and or poisons and stops them from being released into your bloodstream. Also gives you just a really nice cleanse. You if you're having a cleansing week. It is only activated charcoal, which is a specific kind of charcoal, which has lots of pores in it, which is why, like, all of these, like, charcoal drinks and stuff won't do that. But if they are activated charcoal drinks or whatever, you should not drink them if you're having, like, I don't know, you have daily medications you have to take because it will flush them out of your system. So what you're saying is don't go to your local art supply shop and just buy packets of charcoal and, and just crunch them like they're, like they're polo mints. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. <laughs> if that's how you want to spend your weekend, sure. So he said when his neighbor brought him milk, he saw her as a malevolent, insidious witch with a colored mask. Wow. Shots fired. <laughs> I know, right? She's bringing you milk. What's wrong with you? And that was the last nice thing his neighbor ever did. He said of this experience that basically... It wasn't until later that he realized that your mindset can have such a huge influence on what you see while you're on LSD. Hmm. Because at the time that he took his second dose, he was worried and in a like a bad place. Everything that he saw was scary and difficult to deal with. Whereas the first time he hadn't been worried and therefore he had a much nicer trip. So this is why when when people are traveling to parts of Central and South America, for example, and they're taking vision trips where they're taking something like peyote or magic mushrooms or mescaline, they're being they have a guide. They mm. have somebody to guide them through their trip, so they're approaching it with the right mindset. Basically. Exactly, and that also suggests that if somebody were to 
unwittingly slip you some LSD without telling you that... You could have some bad effects. <laughs> you could have a bad time. That's not flagging anything for the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in 1947, Hoffman's company Sandoz began marketing uh, Delicid, or Delicid, a name proposed by Hoffman, which is LSD. Oh, I thought it was a drug that you would take before going into the deli because it makes all the meats taste a hundred times more delicious. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, you're just stuffing Billy Bear ham into your face like it's, like it's you know, ambrosia from heaven. So according to Albion Dreaming, a popular history of LSD in Britain, Sandoz gave out the drug for free to research institutes as long as they shared their data with the company. Sandoz suggested that Delicid, or LSD, be used for two things. One, to be used in analytical psychotherapy so the psychiatrist could access material repressed by the patient. And two, to be used by the psychiatrists themselves to gain insight into the world of ideas and sensations of mental patients. And we're kind of coming back around to this idea now. You'll see um, people proposing microdosing LSD and then uh, talking through traumatic events in their life with a trained psychiatrist to try and relieve things like PTSD. Yes, that that part of it is is definitely coming back into play. The second part, the issue with how LSD was viewed at the time was basically all of these psychiatrists thought that LSD made you feel what a mental illness was. Yeah, and there was this notion that you could accidentally induce mm-hmm. me- mental illness, which I I think there's a grain of truth to that in in of as much as you can you are primed to be triggered for certain mil- mental illnesses at certain ages, right? So nothing can induce um, schizophrenia, for example. Uh, schizophrenia is already in you, but there can be a trigger which causes schizophrenia to come out, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. But they they believed at some point that something like LSD could cause schizophrenia in people. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so what you're saying is that you couldn't have patients um, going in to do their therapy and taking LSD while the psychiatrists were simultaneously yeah. taking LSD. It's a good time, man. So one for you, <laughs> one for me. So Sandoz made its way to, oh, sorry, Delicid made its way to America via uh, psychiatrist conferences, and American psychiatrists became convinced that the drug's use was to induce mental illness and otherwise sane people. It's here that the CIA would start its love affair with LSD, first out of a desire to create a kind of truth drug, and then into much darker territory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the reason they were looking for a truth drug was because in World War II, the Nazis had mescaline, and they used mescaline in their interrogations. But mescaline, they couldn't control what the people were saying. They couldn't guide them to, like, say... I don't know, talk about secret topics or like, you know, tell us about troop movements. They were just like, and then yesterday I had a sandwich and the sandwich was just okay because, you know, I was in hiding and it was raining. And Now I'm just uh, imagining a Nazi commandant being like, okay, I will take off my hat. And he takes off like his little death's head hat and then he puts on like a shaman's headdress and he gets like a little sticky. He's like, okay, whenever you're ready, he just starts chanting and dancing around this guy who's being interrogated. They probably would, considering they like to appropriate so many cultures. 
I mean, as long as they can slap the label Aryan across the front of it, they are A-OK with it. Oh, this is Asian? Aryan now. <laughs> um, so, should we uh, take a break there? Yeah, and then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about... Um... Prisoners of War! Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome. Um, I had a little snack during the break. Yeah, I uh, had that rye bread that we've been keeping at the back of the fridge. Oh, good. Yeah. 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 Um, it's nice. Yeah, that's that's good. It's good. I, it was really tasty. And uh, I'm just happy to be here with you, Which, but it's it's weird because I've never noticed that you're so tall before. Yeah, and I've never noticed how loose your joints are from your body. Yeah. Have your hands always been screaming kittens that are firing fireballs made of sound? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. You just never noticed before. Okay. Well, that's that's nice. That's nice. That's nice. Are you ready? Okay. So let's talk about um, the Korean War, <laughs> the most fun of all wars. <laughs> <laughs> If you had to rank uh, your face, <laughs> let's not do that. No. Nope. So, uh, <laughs> when 23-year-old American soldier Arden Rowley was released after 32 months and 18 days as a prisoner of war in Korea, the first thing he requested was a large bowl of ice cream. Oh, I wonder what flavor he went for. Probably vanilla. Yeah, I don't think they really got interesting flavors until... I want to say, like, maybe the 1970s. <laughs> um, four days later, he boarded the Marine Adder for a two-week journey back to the States, and he walked into a floating interrogation room. Oh, because he was also an LSD. Oh, no, it was literally floating. Yeah, it was literally. Like on a boat, yeah, yeah. I see. It was on a boat. The Marine Adder is a boat. He uh, he went to an actual building, but they just had a big old swimming pool, and the interrogators were just <laughs> on, a, person on, a, on a bit. They're just like treading water, and they're like, "Okay, uh, full suits, <laughs> briefcase." So, <laughs> let me just consult my notes. Oh fuck, they're wet. Okay, farm boy Rowley wasn't an anomaly. Once prisoners were freed, they were processed, and then instead of flying them home on the next plane, they were ushered onto ships that had been retrofitted with interrogation rooms and forced to debrief for eight hours a day until they made it to U.S. soil. Why, uh, why'd you call him farm boy, Rowley? Because he was uh, a Mormon boy from a farm. Oh, I see. Oh, dear. He was an all-American boy. Ah. Still got interrogated for eight hours a day for two weeks, though. Why? If, if he uh, if he was Mormon, they could have just forced him to chug coffee and chain smoke cigarettes while while watching porn, and that would have broken him pretty quick. I mean, you probably shouldn't do that if someone's religion forbids you from doing that. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's probably not that's great. That's pretty fucked up. What I just said. Why were these PTSD-riddled soldiers forced to complete interrogation by their own country? Why, it was a move created out of fear of the new craze called brainwashing. 
In a speech given at Princeton by CIA Director Alan Dulles? Dwells? Uh, Alan Dulles. Dulles. Yeah. Okay. Alan Dulles, he said, The communists are now applying the brainwashing techniques to American prisoners in Korea, and it is not beyond the range of possibility that considerable numbers of our own boys there might be so indoctrinated as to be induced, temporarily at least, to renounce country and family. So, in, in February of 1953, so this is where all this fear came from. Colonel Frank Schwabble? Schwabel? Schwabel? You gotta be 100% more confident when you approach these names. I can't because like I feel I'm gonna like jump I'm gonna in like... and, and mansplain the correct way to say it to you. I am so afraid of being like 100% confident. It's Schwabble, and then somebody's gonna be like, you're a fucking idiot. I feel like Schwabble <laughs> is definitely the most fun way that you could say that name, so. Why not? Yeah. Um, and other prisoners of war falsely confessed to using germ warfare against the Koreans, dropping everything from anthrax to the plague on unsuspecting civilians. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Who the fuck is dropping the plague? <laughs> I know, it's Who is up, trying right? to bring that? Well, I mean, yes. All right. First and foremost, yes. Like, germ warfare is a, an insane idea. But, I mean... Don't do it with something that can that can spread like the fucking plague. Do it with I don't I don't know something that like kills people really quickly, but is manageable. Will stay within its own borders. As far as we know, this was a false claim. So it's not like people were actually dropping the plague. If they were, that is very silly. I think it's Yersinius pestis. Yeah, think about how far that thing got without the advent of. Planes, trains, and automobiles. It did pretty well for itself. Uh, yes, but it can also be cured by modern-day antibiotics. For now. So, the American public was shocked, and grew even more so, when 5,000 of the 700 and 200 POWs either petitioned the U.S. government to end the war, or signed confessions of their alleged crimes, according to Smithsonian. So, basically, all of these people came out and said, we did... Germ warfare on the Koreans. All these American soldiers said, we did germ warfare on the Koreans. Like, we did all these terrible things. The U.S. government government made us do it. Or they signed, like, a petition that said, stop the war. We often think of Korean the Korean War as, uh, like, a weird spin-off to World War II because the, the sentiment... I, I guess the USA was riding off that residual sentiment from World War II that it was another righteous war and there was a very, very clear, like, communist bad, capitalist good. Um, but the people who were actually involved in it, for them, it, it's maybe not quite that clear cut. And I mean, if you've ever watched, watched M.A.S.H., then... <laughs> <laughs> I have. Little, little bits and pieces. I mean, it's a great show and it. I think it's does pretty well i mean it it came out obviously after the war much later but i think it does a great job of showing the sentiment at the time which was soldiers didn't want to be there they didn't understand why they were there Mm -hmm. and it was pretty brutal a lot of civilians were in the crossfire i'm just glad that the usa would never engage in another proxy war against communists uh where a lot of disenfranchised young men would feel like they were uh, kind of thrown into the thrasher for no good reason. Hot takes, fifty-year-old hot takes. 
Okay, so the U.S. military denied the charges made in the confessions, but couldn't explain how they had been coerced into giving false statements. Suddenly, brainwashing was all the rage. Coined by journalist Edward Hunter, who claimed that the Chinese government was using ancient techniques to turn Chinese civilians and POWs into puppets using xinao, or literally brainwash. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that's so close to home because I tell my kids every day, like, go on, xishou, xishou, which is like, wash your hands, hands, wash your hands for God's sake, you you just touched your penis. Um... Yeah, it, oh god, that that old thing of like using ancient oriental wisdom. Exactly. So uh, this was in the fifties that he coined this phrase. Yeah, and it is very racist. <laughs> I mean, I think I think it goes both ways. I think you you would probably encounter a lot of Chinese people, and by extension, East Asians, who would put their stock in traditional herbal remedies or holistic remedies over um, modern Western medical techniques. Um, and uh, unfortunately, like a byproduct of that is uh, only this highly endangered animal's uh, penis will make my penis work. Let's be clear, that's not all traditional medicine. No, no, 100%. <laughs> and I think I can understand having gone through the medical system in China, why you might trust your herbalist more than you did the doctor, who, by the way... Uh, are often like they have to learn English or they have to like so they're not maybe not seen as like Chinese mm-hmm. um, whereas like I know my my Chinese medical like my Chinese medicine doctor and he lives down the street from me and he has told me like how how to get rid of my headache and like the pressure points work so yeah yeah and to what extent that is psychosomatic or it's it's just based on i mean it's a form of faith healing isn't it if you if you place your faith in this person that is known to your family sure part it's part placebo and part things like pressure points do relieve headaches so you know yeah it's a bit of both but unfortunately eh. people just see some of these labels and they're like oh i'll ask no further (laughs) questions i couldn't possibly understand this therefore i shouldn't understand this yeah, so this journalist coins this term in the 1950s, and then in 1953, all of these POWs are claiming, like, this nonsensical uh, warfare techniques that didn't happen, and everybody picks up the torch, and they're like, "Oh, it's brainwashing! Mm-hmm. Um, suddenly the idea of mind control was everywhere, from pop culture hits like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and the Manchurian Candidate to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover's book. In it, he he mentions quite a few times, like, mind control techniques or something like that. Mm-hmm. But he's, he's def- desperately seeking a mind control technique which will stop him wanting to wear women's clothes underneath mm. his, his suit. Which, if you want to do... <laughs> Just do it, man. Go for it. But if you want to do that and then try to use other people's proclivities and vices against them and act like you're not a little bit, a little bit, it's pretty you know. Up. <laughs> so were these men being brainwashed? No. For the American soldiers trapped in Korean prison camps, brainwashing meant forced standing, deprivation of food and sleep, solitary confinement, and repeated exposure to communist propaganda. So it was torture, basically. And these men would, after going through extensive torture, like prisoners of war all over the world, 
would come out and declaim their country or, like, say things that didn't happen. So after this happened, the U.S. created S-E-R-E, which is Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape, which is training for soldiers who are being tortured. It's basically torturing the soldiers before they can be tortured by... Yeah, and and not teaching them to uh, withstand interrogation techniques because they know that eventually they are going to crack, but to put up with it for as long as possible. Yeah, and then with an emphasis on escape mm-hmm. and survival. Okay, so... By this point, the public is already kind of enamored and feared by this whole mind control thing, and the CIA was desperate to have their little mind control drug. Yeah, I believe another, in addition to seeing all these POWs come out and bad talk the US government, another big case at this time was, I believe, a Hungarian priest or a Hungarian cardinal who initially was speaking out against the encroaching communist regime in Hungary, and he was then taken away, and when he came back, he uh, gave a press conference during which he, in a very dead-eyed manner, started talking about all these crimes that he was guilty of, etc., etc. So people looked at that and said, oh, he must be being mind-controlled. He's been brainwashed and saying all these things. And it seems so naive in a way because, I mean, torture has existed probably for as As long as as human beings have existed. Yeah. Um, So the idea like that, well, that's the only way that, you know. How would someone be able to to give up their convictions like that? Well, try pulling their fingernails out. They're probably going to give up. You must have so, so much. I wonder if there was this genuine sense of hubris around the idea that capitalism is the only way to live your lives and it's the only way that our society functions and it is the correct way of doing things. And there's no way that, you know, somebody could fall out of love with that way of life and into the, the the ways of communism so the only way that they could feel those that way is if somebody literally switched out their brain well, this is the way that we do things this is the correct way so mm, that's some delicious coca-cola right there um all right so let's introduce one of our main players for this series Sidney gottlieb might be one of the most terrifying men you've never heard of You've probably never heard of the man himself, and that's something that he took great care to ensure. However, you're almost certainly aware of his work. Over the course of his career, this prolific chemist helped bring LSD to the mainstream. He gave birth to the modern notion of brainwashing, and conjured up some of the most insidious and batshit crazy assassination plots in history. To the untrained eye, he was a harmless bureaucrat. But to the few individuals who knew him, he was a ruthless puppet master, operating with the most dangerous of all weapons, the justification of the greater good. Sidney Gottlieb, if you you think of crazy CIA schemes, go ahead, pause the podcast right now and just Google strange, weird, crazy CIA plots 
off the top of my head, stuffing uh, bombs in conch shells because Castro liked to go yeah. <laughs> snorkeling. Where, where Fidel Castro is concerned, there are just a ton of them, and you could do you could do a separate episode. We talked about doing a separate episode all about that. Um, or yeah, putting uh, explosives into Fidel Castro's cigars, etc., etc. A lot of that is down to Sidney Gottlieb. And, of course, there was entire offices. There was an office dedicated to just assassinating Fidel Castro. But you had entire subdivisions of the CIA whose entire role was just to think up these crazy ways of killing people undetected. And that rabbit hole always starts off funny, like, oh my god, I can't believe they they would actually believe that something like this would work. And it always ends up fucking terrifying. Yeah, like needles in umbrellas and poking people as you walk by. Like Yeah, like creating a needle so small that you can get stuck with it and not even realize it's happened. Uh, to administer a poison that's so deadly that you, you'll be dead within days. And it is undetectable. So nobody could even look at your corpse and say, this man's been poisoned. Anyway, sleep tight. <laughs> Don't worry about that for the if rest anything, of the day. We're higher on the list now than you are, so you should be fine. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Uh, so when Gottlieb was hired by the CIA in 1951, he couldn't have been more different from his clandestine colleagues. The recruits of the former OSS were made up of suave Ivy Leaguers, recruited to the most prestigious universities and American dynasties. Think of some of the characters from Mad Men, and you're not far off. Many of them were decorated war heroes who, like George H.W. Bush, would eventually move into powerful positions in office. Gottlieb, on the other hand, was the son of a Hungarian Jewish immigrant who had fled religious persecution. He had a club foot and a stutter. When he entered the CIA, he was living in a remote farmhouse in Vienna, Virginia, where he would get up every morning before dawn to milk his goats. He... Euphemism? <laughs> <laughs> Look, some guys, they just like to do that first thing in the day. Some guys like to do it at the end of the night. Doesn't matter. Uh, Stephen Kinzer is a fantastic journalist who literally wrote the book on Sidney Gottlieb. I believe the book is titled Poisoner in Chief. And... He do, he did this fantastic talk a couple of years ago at this university, which is on YouTube, uh, as always, links in the show notes. And he talks about this guy who, this very unassuming bureaucrat who led this very esoteric, kind of holistic, homeopathic lifestyle and was then recruited into the CIA. We're talking meditation with candles, we're talking growing your own food, and aims a family man as well, which, you know, and the things that he would do uh, after his time at the CIA, again, he didn't move into political office, for example, or set himself up with uh, a high-level company. Uh, he then <laughs> went off to do charity work. Um, but the stuff in between... If he sounds like a cool guy at this stage, just put put that put that in the background. He's hundred percent not. <laughs> no chill. <laughs> no zero chill from Sidney Gottlieb. He was what you could generously describe as unorthodox, but for the CIA and the American military, who were already embroiled in the kind of Cold War that had never been fought before, 
maybe unorthodox was exactly what they were looking for. It's important to note that Gottlieb was not the one who came up with the idea of a mind control program or using psychoactive drugs to extort information from unwilling subjects. By 1953, Project Bluebird already existed for that very reason. However, when Gottlieb began the MK Ultra program, he would take all of these previous efforts and kick them into overdrive. So what we now know as Pro- Project MK Ultra, which if if you don't already know, don't worry, we're we're this is what we're moving through, was originally known as Project Bluebird because they wanted to quote get their informants to sing like birds mm-hmm. wow. <laughs> and then became known as project artichoke i'm not 100 percent sure why maybe because they wanted to take the hearts out of their informants <laughs> and then drizzle some olive oil and cracked Roast black them. pepper on them yeah uh, so that was a weird direction for the program to go yeah uh so the mk in these basically signifies who's involved i think so not mortal combat no <laughs> You just drug up two informants on LSD and you're like, round one, fight! MK also doesn't stand for mind control. (laughs) But if this were dreamed up in the 1990s by a group of uh, snack manufacturers Mm. aiming at young children and and teens. have a big X for extreme. (laughs) Extreme! MK! Cool wrench! And the the ultra just means, oh, it's ultra secret. (laughs) So could I tell, like, three people or, like, some people at my book club? Ultra! Gotcha. All right. I'm just going to tell the guy. Just the guy at the gas station. He's really nice. He's okay. (laughs) Uh, So in his book, Poisoner in Chief, as we were discussing earlier, journalist Stephen Kinzer details Gottlieb's plan for mind control. Quote, Gottlieb wanted to create a way to seize control of people's minds, and he realized it was a two-part process. First, you had to blast away the existing mind. Second, you had to find a way to insert a new mind into that resulting void. We didn't get too far in number two, but he did a lot of work on number one. It's terrifying. That's a terrifying quote. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. And also, it's kind of like... Uh, taking your car into the garage to get a new part fitted and it's like, well, we stripped out all the old parts and then and then you put the new part in. Well, no. we made room for it. We the, made room for it. The important thing is, the parts that didn't work, gone. <laughs> <laughs> Could I drive home? Oh, I would not recommend that. <laughs> not this car, sir. Uh, Alright, so how exactly would you destroy someone's brain before rebuilding it from scratch? I'm I'm sure that's the question that we're all screaming. All I think about every day. <laughs> Electroshocks, induced comas, mind-altering chemicals. There is no one-size-fits-all solution. But... <laughs> Clearly, because we're all different. So we gotta try everything on everybody. We're looking for a tailored approach to <laughs> fucking up your cranium. For the willing or often unwilling test subjects, the end methods were typically unpleasant and often irrevocable. According to Stephen Kinzer, during the Cold War, Gottlieb and his staff were allowed to operate at what would today be referred to as black sites in Japan, the Philippines, and West Germany. These were areas of American influence where their work could be conducted unchallenged. So, what they are doing is illegal. But since they're not doing it on American soil, they can get away with it. 
Yeah, and these are areas where they can, especially in places like West Germany, they can pick up people who are quote-unquote spies or enemy combatants, and so it's, it's cool. They will not restrain themselves to these sites. Uh, no, no they will not. Ostensibly, they were capturing enemy spies which were considered fair game for their new interrogation techniques. But this was not always the case. According to Kinzer, they would often grab members of the public, referred to as expendables, and bundle them into a car. Quote, they would grab these people and throw them into cells, and then test all kinds of, not just drug potions, but other techniques, like electroshock, extremes of temperature, sensory isolation, all the meantime bombarding them with questions, trying to see if they could break down resistance and find a way to destroy the human ego. I was talking to you about this off-air. This interview, which was done on Abe Lincoln's top hat with a former member of the CIA, Mm -hmm. who was essentially, he became a whistleblower, and he was talking about the enhanced interrogation techniques which were employed in the fallout in the wake of 9-11 before subsequently being set up and and sent to prison. Uh, The CIA, uh, let's say up until very recently probably right now as we're speaking, still employ these same kind of techniques. Yeah, these, I mean, they're tried and true methods at this point. They, they do work in breaking people down. If you, if you make sure that someone cannot sleep, their mind begins to go. You can, oh, yeah. you can destroy someone's sense of self through these techniques. Please do not. <laughs> I think the one week mark, maybe the nine day mark, and, and again, this is in the CIA handbook for enhanced interrogation techniques. I can't remember if it's seven days or nine days when your your vital organs start failing if you don't have uh, sleep. And the way that you ensure that somebody doesn't get sleep is you put them in a cell and they have industrial floodlights blaring. At, like, blasting music. Yeah, the blasting death metal the entire time. Uh, somebody will periodically come and just like rough you up um yeah which uh would not get a five-star rating if i stayed at that airbnb i'm just gonna say just remember that whoever these people are they are humans yeah i mean 100 percent, and also uh, I feel like this is a much deeper conversation the the data the data shows that when you use, let's call it what it is, when you use torture techniques on enemy combatants to try and extract information, it doesn't work. And unfortunately, what does work, I think, is things like befriending these individuals, uh, treating them as human beings, and trying to give them what they want. It's not, we're not comfortable with that idea, right? But Sure, we don't want to give an enemy spy what they want. However, like, you are going to get information from torture, it may not be good information because basically they'll just agree with anything mm-hmm. to, to stop the torture. So they they may give you information, but it's not going to be the same quality of information as if, you know. Yeah. Also, if you're not comfortable with giving uh, the enemy what they want in order to get something from them, uh, just know that all the, <laughs> all the information that we have here, all the information that the CIA used in these programs, guess who they got that information from? the Nazis and the Japanese scientific officers who used these techniques during World War II. So 
Yes. It's also how we got to the moon as well. Well, I don't know, Nazi scientists. Mm. Um, while we think about all the technology that this wonderful, wonderful individuals gave us, uh, why don't we take a, a quick little break? Let's do that. All right. Welcome back. Uh, I just had a nice young man come around and attach some jumper cables to my nipples, so I'm feeling really refreshed and ready to go. A nice electric shock in the morning can really open you up to the day. (laughs) Just really gape you to the day. Yeah. Uh, All right, so while we're talking about people, (laughs) uh, people are just having horrible things done to them. Uh, the CIA were not keeping all of these ops away from their own doorstep. No, no, no. In 1954, seven prison inmates in Kentucky were administered LSD and forced to stay high for 77 days. And part of you might be like, yeah, but oh god, <laughs> like, I feel acid like... trip for 77 days? So I feel like the people who have taken uh, mind-altering, like, mind-expanding drugs can appreciate how fucking horrible that would be, like, being on a permanent trip that you are stuck on, and it's... Have they... no control over. And they haven't told you, like, oh, yeah, we're gonna end this in X amount of time. And they have no fucking clue what they're doing. They're like, oh, 77 is a nice round number. We have, we have seven guys, 77 days. Why not? I have no clue why it lasted for that length of time, but it did. Uh, and what is... Uh, okay, so this is actually one of the more famous experiments where the CIA and mind control uh, came together. What is often overlooked is that all of the participants in this program were black. Ah. So, yeah, so people always talk about these seven participants and them being high for 77 days straight. Um, they're obviously looking for, I guess, easy easy victims, easy marks, mm. um, who even if there is enough working custard inside of your skull after this to then go to the press and tell somebody, yeah, nobody's going to listen to you. I do find it interesting. So you said before this that they're looking for a way to destroy the human ego. Yeah. In 2016, there was a study done uh, where they finally looked at someone's brain on LSD and saw that basically the centers that are controlling your sense of self and ego kind of diminish while you're on LSD. So that's why they think you have this feeling of oneness with the universe. Yeah, being completely connected to everything else. This isn't something that they knew at the time. I'm not trying to give the CIA credit. They had no idea what LSD did. Um... But it is interesting that they were trying to destroy the sense of self. And LSD is a drug in which it kind of suppresses your sense of self. Yeah, I think it's like, it's probably a little bit like those early surgeons that were cutting people open to try and to, to cut out tumors. They had no idea what exactly cancer was, but they, they figured if they just kind of poked around in there that they would eventually figure it out. In a 2019 article for Politico, Stephen Kinzer details the goings-on at Fort Derrick, the CIA's domestic base for their mind control program. 
The base lies 50 miles outside of Washington, D.C., and was originally commissioned in 1943 for the U.S. Army's Biological Weapons Research Facility. When Sidney Gottlieb was brought aboard what was then Project Bluebird by CIA Director Alan Dulles, he asked to use Detrick as his base of operations. Dulles negotiated an accord which allowed Gottlieb and his tight-knit team to operate within the base like a drug-filled Troika doll. Essentially, there were people still operating biological weapons programs within the base, and they had no idea that there was also this mind control experiment being run like within the same offices as them. These, these guys in suits just showed up and they just went to work, and they weren't allowed to ask any questions. From the political article... Quote, Gottlieb tested an astonishing variety of drug combinations, often in conjunction with other torments like electroshock or sensory deprivation. In the United States, his victims were unwitting subjects at jails and hospitals, including a federal prison in Atlanta and an addiction research center in Lexington, Kentucky. How fucked up is that? Like, you're already in for addiction, or you're in prison, you have so little sense of like self and privacy and whatever else you have well you're you're a less than you don't count so i get to just use you i i i hate to say this so i think there is a part of us as a society that wants an entity like a cia or like an mi6 or like a KGB, because we want somebody who is willing to take care of problems that we are afraid of, right? Whether those problems are real or or simply perceived, we want this massive predatory organization to be operating for our quote-unquote protection, right? We, We like that idea on some level. But that's exactly what this organization is. It's it's predatory. And the way, the, the type of people that they're targeting here, it just reminds me of when you talk about serial killers who target the West Ed. They're going after people who they know. Can't fight back. Exactly. They can't fight back. Society doesn't really care about them. Um, These aren't white middle class, like, men that they're targeting who <laughs> these could, aren't like, like the kind of people who would be in the cia yeah exactly these are people who are usually people of color or people with mental health issues or people who are in prison like these are people who even if they did come out like imagine if somebody came out today and they were like the cia had been experimenting on me in my uh psychiatric facility and you'd be like you're a fucking nut job i don't yeah. believe you and- because you're crazy and it could be 100% true because it is happening, or it was happening in the 50s. And just to be clear, the stuff that we're covering here is based on conspiracy, but it's not a conspiracy theory. It is a conspiracy fact. All of these things happened. They went. So this is the stuff that we know about. Yeah, this is the stuff that they have released, basically. It's not even what they choose to not tell us that they did. Yeah, it's like, should we tell them about the microwave cannon or not? I probably shouldn't do that. How about the androids? Should we tell them about the androids? Uh, just leave that for another 10 years, and then we'll leak that to the public. Not content with sticking to their own backyard, the CIA decided to hop the fence and shit in their neighbor's one too. 
That's right, the CIA also experimented on unwilling victims across the border in Canada. According to a 2017 episode of CBC's investigative show, The Fifth Estate, in the 1950s and 60s, patients committed to the hospital for something as simple as postpartum depression were subjected to chemically induced sleep for weeks and continuous rounds of electroshocks. Many emerged broken and destroyed, their memories erased, and minds permanently damaged. And there's a, a short clip from that CB um, from that CBC series. They've done a number of different shows. They've followed up on it a few times where, where they've talked about this. There's this woman talking about her mother being admitted to this facility for postpartum depression. And she was like, I lost my mother after that. She came home and she was just not... Like, when people talk about someone being a shell of their former selves... That's what it was. So, again, coming back to what Stephen Kinzer said earlier about those uh, quote-unquote expendables, they, they're they very good at the breaking down part. They just couldn't figure out how to get in and plant something. Yes, like uh, an over-enthusiastic uh, puzzle hobbyist. They've got all the pieces out on the table, and then they, they figure they'll, they'll put them together later. I was thinking about a gardener. Who just dish, like digs up everything like the plant bed, and then they're like, "All right, that's enough for today." Yeah, they're good. They're gonna get right to doing like a vegetable garden at some point, but uh, not this year. The experiments were conducted at the Allen Memorial Institute under the management of respected psychiatrist Dr. Ewan Cameron. He had been subcontracted by the CIA to run some of the experiments in so-called depatterning how to break a human mind in order to reprogram it to spec. Quote, The federal government provided Cameron with more than $500,000 between 1950 and 1965, $4 million in today's money, along with a smaller amount of funding from the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, using a front organization called the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology. Sounds pretty innocuous, right? There's no way you would look into the books for the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology. What is human ecology? Well, you know, it's uh, ecology, but specifically focused around uh, people. Oh, okay, thank you. No further questions, please. (laughs) The federal government began paying out compensation to some of the victims' families in the 1980s. By the 1990s, they had provided compensation to 77 victims, but turned down more than 250 because they, quote, weren't tortured enough, applied too late, or because they couldn't produce medical records. It's so weird that they couldn't get their medical records for... This, um, uh, basically a CIA black site that you created in a psychiatric hospital? Yeah, that's weird. Huh, I wonder... I wonder if it was easy to get your medical records from them. I wonder if you could just walk up and request. Oh, yes, I was uh, a part of the, the 1950s experiment on unwilling victims where you destroyed my mind. Uh, can I have my uh, papers, please? Sure. Let me just, uh, uh, which one of these and plastic that... bags full of paper shavings do, do we, uh, what was your name again, sir? Was that E for electroshock therapy or S for sleep? Oh, this is so silly. It's both of them. <laughs> of course it is. You're real lucky because we were going to burn all these tomorrow. At the time of reporting, neither the CIA nor the Canadian government had apologized to the families of victims. It's just another, like, hat on a hat, isn't it? 
They destroyed these people's lives, literally destroyed them, then refused to give them compensation as if that would ever be enough, and then are like, we didn't do anything wrong. I mean, again, I'm coming back to this uh, interview that they did with uh, the whistleblower from the CIA, and he's talking about everything that he learned in the CIA handbook. And, and you know, I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but part of it is bullshit and sidestep. You deny and misdirect, basically. Yeah, deny yeah, yeah. No, and... we didn't do it. Hey, I'm pretty sure you guys did it, right? So yeah. if if people come at you looking for apologies and compensation, don't don't give it to them. And I think a lot of this is kind of uh, it brings to mind what's happening now in Canada with the treatment of indigenous people coming out and like all of these all of these children who were murdered basically and how it was just swept under the rug it's not that different it's these people who were considered less dead or less than and basically their lives were destroyed and then swept under the rug yeah so again this is absolutely real We've introduced some of the main players in today's story. Uh, next time round, we're going to be telling you more about the MK Ultra program and specifically Operation Midnight Climax. So just uh, just briefly, what, what have we learned here today, Alicia? Well, we've learned that the CIA was uh, ostensibly created post-World War II to kind of hone our peacetime intelligence mm-hmm. and really just as soon as they were created in 1947 immediately ran into mind control uh and torture techniques <laughs> yeah uh whether people bought into it or not genuinely the the red scare of the 40s and 50s convinced everyone that brainwashing was a thing and it was being used by our enemies and we were way behind in the game so we needed to catch up real quick and that gave certain very powerful individuals a a blank check to do whatever nefarious shit they wanted to in the name of freedom and that began with <coughs> patriot <laughs> <laughs> i didn't i didn't catch that i don't know what you're referring to um yeah, and it and it really makes you wonder. So all of this didn't come. We'll discuss it a little bit next time, guys. But all of this didn't come to light properly for at least a decade afterwards. You know, we we have only just gotten out of Afghanistan really cleanly, and I'm I'm so glad we went in and everything. You know, I'm glad they have all those McDonald's and Starbucks there now. But uh, it it really makes you wonder what we're going to find out in the coming years. Mm, um, absolutely. Yeah about uh, both our, our time in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Fun facts. Are they going to be fun? Uh, mine's kind of fun. I think mine might be more common knowledge than I thought. Okay. Um, did you know that Julia Child was a member of the OSS? No. Yeah, famous uh, chef. And, oh, she loves to talk like this. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the TV chef. Yeah. She's in that movie, uh, Ju- Julia, Julia and Julia. Yeah, I don't think that's where she's famous from, but... <laughs> no, that's that's where I became aware of her. Sure. Julia Child was uh, famous for being one of the first female chefs and a TV personality. And she helped develop the shark repellent that would be coated on explosives 
that targeted German U-boats. So, like, basically the sharks would bump into these mines and set them off. So they had to create a shark repellent to stop the sharks from bumping into the mines. I get... Okay, so, like, I guess it makes sense on some level because in the movie, like... Her, played by Meryl Streep, and her her husband Stanley Tucci. Their whole thing is that like he is a diplomat or an so ambassador, and so they, they like travel all around the world. They met in the OSS. Oh. He was also like a an agent, and then he after the war he starts working for the State Department, and that's why they moved to France. But before that, she from nineteen forty four to forty five she worked overseas in what is now Sri Lanka. And uh, in Kunming, China, where she handled highly classified papers that dealt with the invasion of the Malay Peninsula. Oh, damn. So she was, uh, for the majority of time, like an assistant, um, but she, she had a hand in all of these things. And then her and her husband moved to France, and with all her extra time, she decided to take cooking classes. So obviously, and we know she was very adept at that, right? So clearly, like, a very, um, very driven woman. Mm. Yeah. You go, girl. <laughs> you get him. More power to you, queen. Um, I can't remember if I've told you this weird fact already or not. Uh, we're talking about the origin of the Manchurian candidate. Uh, I don't, I can't remember if I've told you this or not. I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I'm going to give you the fact now. Um, so, you know, the story of the Manchurian candidate, somebody who is captured by mm-hmm. uh, communists and then they are reprogrammed to then become like a, a sleeper a, agent. Yeah, like a sleeper agent uh, to then go off and assassinate somebody. The Manchurian in the title comes from something in real life. Apparently, when. American POWs were being repatriated from North Korea. They were driven through China. And a lot of the POWs would talk about as their trucks were going through Manchuria, they would have this kind of like mental haze where they weren't 100% sure what was going on. And so people thought that there was something going on, like that they were being put into some kind of way station. And that's where these mind control or brainwashing experiments were happening. And it came out from multiple sources, so they figured that there must be some kind of pattern there. We've never really proved that. They're probably just dragging them so they can't find the way back to the prison camps. I mean, that's pretty <laughs> smart, yeah. Um, so that's that's where the name comes from, the Manchurian Candidate. Interesting. Hmm. All right, well, we hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please give us a like, give us a follow, and leave a review. This has been Enter the Rabbit Hole, as always, reminding you to... Uh, don't take drugs from strangers. Take it from, take it from friends. Yeah, take it from people you know and trust. Yeah. All right, guys, uh, take care for now. (laughs) Bye-bye. Ciao. Enter the Rabbit Hole is written and presented by William Grant and Alicia Palmer. The music was created by Glenn Marshall. More information and sources can be found in the episode description. You can email us at etrhthepod at gmail or follow us on Instagram at etrhthepod. Thanks for listening.